Please be seated. This morning's sermon is from Judges 6. I will be reading verses 1 through 16. Hear God's word. The people of Israel did what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no subsistence in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste in the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I let you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And he, and I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the tabernacle of Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the land of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest of Mesa, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. The word of God. Amen. Children, you're dismissed. Off you go. You know, there's a story in the Bible in the book of Acts. Uh, it's the story of Eutychus. And uh, Eutychus uh, famously falls asleep while Paul's preaching. And that happens every week here at Restoration Church. People fall asleep. But I think we have a higher pro- proclivity to it possibly happening this week, especially my sermon's a, a bit longish. So work on that every week. Uh, and so uh, let's ask the Lord to keep us awake and attentive to his word, because what we have here is amazing. What we have here is amazing. And so let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to awaken us to his word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would speak, that our hearts would be attentive and that God, you would orient us towards your mercy, that we might find idols destroyed and lives awakened to your glory. Amen. Well, uh, once a month, there's a group of pastors that come together from around the D.C. area. 
Uh, we come together for about once a month, and there's about 30, 40 of us roughly in a room, and we talk to each other, help each other, pray for each other. Uh, there may be issues going on. We kind of help each other think it through a little bit. And we had one this past Tuesday, and there was a brother in there that uh, had been sharing with us, somebody that was coming to his church, and he was speaking to this woman, and uh, at the over the course of the conversation, uh, this brother pastor shared with this woman something that she had shared that he understood what she was talking about was not faithful to the Bible. Well, uh, instead of the woman getting upset at him, she was shocked. She just couldn't believe that something that other pastors had told her was right, he was saying was wrong. And that led this pastor to say to us at that group, something I've been thinking about a lot this week. <clears throat> he said, I'm quoting it, he said, you know, I've, we've been thinking all along that the more that society kind of secularizes, the less and less people would be interested in Christianity. And this pastor said, I think we're not actually finding that to be the case. He said, we're finding that more and more people, or just as many people, are interested in Jesus as they were before, except now they just want a Jesus that won't disagree with them. Got me thinking a good bit, sort of, you know, sat right, just got to thinking. And then uh, I've been reading a book by a brother by the name of Oz Guinness, philosopher, author. He writes in his book, Impossible People, quote, As modern people, we are no longer defined by our family, our city, our class, our occupation, or even our gender. We can be whoever we want to be, and there is almost limitless range of choices before us now. Modern identity is fluid rather than fixed, and invented rather than inherited. The trend is toward the subjective, the shifting, and the self-chosen. And so that subjective, uh, self-chosen, customizable identification that hasn't escaped people. Uh, they have not escaped the people that call themselves Christians. Christians, I think, find themselves in the same way, like we just talked about from that brother's experience. They want to kind of customize the faith, customize Jesus. And in fact, this subjective view of God that kind of shifts with our own desires uh, is not new. It's not new. In fact, we find this uh, throughout history. Most notably, as we've been walking through the book of Judges, we've been seeing it there. Uh, We've been seeing in the book of Judges how everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. They are taking the name of the one true God while worshiping another God, and they're experiencing the difficulties therein. And as a result, what we've begun to see is we've begun to make sense of why things are so hard in Israel, and I think we've at least had some hints and some indications of why things are getting even more difficult for us today. And so, as the Bible teaches us, there's nothing new under the sun, so mankind is bent towards self-rule, which always leads to destruction. Now, that's the bad news. But the good news is, folks, is we've been seeing that in the midst of this, there is a God that is real, that is true, that is willing and able to offer mercy to all of us, to save us, to deliver us from ourselves, the kind of customizable view that we have often put up upon God. He's willing and able to deliver us. And we're going to see the same thing today in Judges 6. We come to Judges 6 this morning where we are introduced to a new guy by the name of Gideon. Gideon is kind of a curious character. You'll see that even today. He's got some good moments, some not so good moments. We're going to be with Gideon for the next few weeks. His story goes all the way into the end of chapter 8. And I've entitled this sermon, The Tepid and Trusting Leader. Gideon, but that describes Gideon, but it doesn't exactly describe what the text is trying to get at. So here's the big idea in the text. Big idea is that our weakness must be bound to God's strength if we are going to see deliverance. 
So there's going to be three points this morning. Here's the first. First one is judgment sometimes gives. Judgment sometimes gives. So we get those now familiar words in verse one. You can see it there of chapter six. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this is shocking and kind of a terrible testimony to Israel. Because, as we've seen, God has delivered these guys over and over and over again. Only to have them fall ever deeper into sin on the other side of that. At which time they call out and God delivers them. And so, as a result of all of the sinful choices that they've made, the Lord has warned them. He then removes his providential power to deliver their enemies from them. But not only does he remove his providential power, we see there in the text, the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And so just as we are told that that it gets worse with each cycle of sin, of disobedience, it does seem to be getting worse. If you look in verses 2 down to 6 there, we get the most detailed account of how awful it was to live in the land at this time as an Israelite. In essence, what you have here is the Midianites and the Amalekites are raiding raiding Israel's lines of sustenance. Taking away food and those kinds of things. Taking away livestock. Which, by the way, they take away livestock. That's going to take away them the possibility of them to cultivate other kinds of food. They even are taking Israel's tents. And so things got so bad in Israel, Israel is now retreating into the mountains in order to hide from these raiding parties. Take a look at there at verse 2. You'll notice that word overpowered. So Israel is now overpowered. And just compare this, guys, with the same group of people uh, that initially were led into the land. When Israel first came into the land, they couldn't lose a single battle. They were winning all kinds of battles to the point of larger groups of people being afraid of the Israelites because they knew that the God that was with them was going to drive out all of their enemies. But now, not only are they not feared by surrounding people, people are now taking advantage of them and raiding them not once, not twice, but for seven long, horrific years. And the reason for all of this state of affairs is not because God is some monster. No, he's given him his word. He gave him his presence. He warned them of all of this activity. He's delivered them time and again. Now, this state of affairs is because of Israel's determination to not obey or listen to the Lord. You can see that there in verse 10. Instead, they've gone their own way. They've done as they please. And so God, like a faithful judge, gives them a just punishment. And so this shows that you can choose your own sin, but you cannot choose your own consequences. So he gives them, God does, he gives them over to the hand of the Midianites because they have, because God had given them over to their own desires. Now we don't normally think of judgment for sin as something where God gives us over to something or gives us over to someone. We normally think of judgment as God taking something from us, right? He takes his uh, presence away, he takes life away, something like that. But here we see, as we've seen before, that God gives them over to sin. And then God gives the Israelites as a consequence to those sins, the full choices that they make. The consequence is these Midianites' raids. This is their punishment. And friends, this is consistent with judgment in the New, De- in the New Testament as well. There's some things in the Old Testament that do not continue under the New Covenant, some things that do. This aspect to judgment continues as well. This idea of the Lord handing us over to our desires as a result of uh, sin. If you were to look in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the consequences of sin in the world. 
And when he does, we read three times in that chapter the words, God gave them up. Similar language to what we read in Judges 6. We find in Romans 1, God gave up the world to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. We find that God gave the world up to dishonorable passions. And thirdly, God gave the world up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So in other words, the judgment of God on sin is sometimes, sometimes done not in a way that merely takes something away from us, but sometimes it's done where God gives us over to something. Most notably, we find him in in the New Testament giving us over to the passions of our flesh. Maybe it could be something we want. Oftentimes, it's something we want. He gives us over to that. In the case of the Israelites, they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. They did as they pleased. And therefore, the consequence was they were handed over to the Midianites and the Amalekites' raids. And so in a similar way today, since the world has not listened to the voice of the Lord, God has judged the world by giving the world over to its passions, to its desires. And the consequences of that judgment is not the raiding parties of the Midianites, but instead it's the chaos and the confusion that we find ourselves living in today. It's much of the reason why we're sort of, we find ourselves in strange days. And just to be clear, I do not mean to indicate that every bad thing that comes to somebody is a result of God's punishment. Don't know that, not saying that at all, but I do believe we can conclude from Judges and these passages that I read in Romans 1 that freedom to do as we please sounds more like God's judgment than it does like God's favor. So the so-called freedom to have more and more options to do as we please and be who we please is not, friend, not the road to life, not the road to joy, but instead it could be an indication of the judgment of God as we see in Romans 1, as we see happening throughout Judges. And so here's the application for us today. We must constantly be vigilant to war against everything we want in favor of binding ourselves to a few things that we need. We've got to war against this idea of sort of of leaning into everything that we want in favor of binding ourselves to a few things that we need. And, And in my mind, guys, this is the front lines of Christianity in the world but especially the front lines of Christianity in America. So if you are 35 or below, which is most of you in this room, all right, and most of you grew up in America, your entire adult life has consisted of a world that is straining to customize everything to fit your desires. From your Google searches, to your phones, to your car, to the school that you attend, to all the way up to your sexual partners, and down to a basic understanding of what family is, This world is bending over backwards to customize all of those things to fit whatever your individual preferences might be. And while this is not always a bad thing, not at all, the underlying ethic is unhealthy, as we're seeing. Living however we please, however living however they please, is why the Israelites got into so much trouble so often. And I would even go one more step further to say that those things I mentioned, the Google searches and the phones and all that stuff, I would even say one more step further. Those are not even the most dangerous battlefields. I would argue the most dangerous battlefield is right here in the church. Right here in the church. It's easy to pick on more liberal churches or whatever the case may be, but evangelical churches are conforming to the pattern of your preferences by offering you as many options as they can for you to individually come and consume their services. And so while this is not wrong in and of itself, there's a way in which we do that here. 
and will continue to do that. It is playing with the fire of God's judgment of giving us over to our desires. And so we still we still have a couple more months left in Judges, so I'm not going to tease all the implications of this out. But listen, if you are a Christian, you do not need people and a church that are trying to do everything they can to conform to your individual likes and dislikes. Friends, that's just not love. It's not love. It's not the way I raise my kids. I don't think, and I think it's best to not raise them that way. So you need Christians. You need a church that will humbly, lovingly call you to die to yourself, die to your desires in order to live to Christ and his desires. That's what you need. This is the way to true and lasting joy in life. Denying self, taking up Christ and his cross and his people. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, I hope that you see that unlimited options is not the way to life and joy. It's not the way. Freedom is binding yourself and your desires to Christ, the one whom you're made for. This friend, this entire narrative of Judges, if you're not a Christian, go back and read the rest of this story in Judges, and you'll see the more and more and more they give themselves over their desires, the worse and worse it gets. And so this account, friend, is here for you to read and see. You need Jesus. He's the one you're made for. And so I hope that you'll trust him. Think about that. But God brings the Israelites we see very low by handing them over to their desires, which results in his giving them over to the oppression of the Midianites and the Amalekites. And so we then need to ask the question, how do we get out of this? How do we get out of the cycle of this kind of sinful cycle of going down and down in terms of our own preferences? Well, first we see judgment sometimes gives. Secondly, we see mercy always speaks. Mercy always speaks. Now, what do I mean by that? You guys that have been around, you should be anticipating this by now. If you've been walking through us, uh, we see Israel uh, disobeys. They do whatever is right, as it were, in their own eyes. The Lord then brings destruction. What comes next, guys? Distress, right? Call out to God for mercy. You can see that there in verse 6. So they've given themselves over to disobedience. God then brings that destruction as a punishment. They then call out in distress to God for mercy. And so here's what I mean by mercy always speaks. After Israel calls out, unlike other times, this time, a little different, the Lord does not immediately raise up a judge or a deliverer. Instead, he sends a prophet. Now, we don't know much about this prophet. We don't know who it is. Uh, but what do prophets do? Prophets speak, right? They speak God's word. So we're on about the fifth cycle now, down. So the way I've been thinking about it is, imagine they started at the top of a really tall building and they kind of go around the rooms and it gets worse and then they go down, God delivers them, and they go down some stairs, down to the next one, down, 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 down. So we're on about our fifth cycle down. They've come down about five floors. Uh, so the Lord brings them a prophet and uh, brings them a sermon. <laughs> so instead of bringing them deliverance, he brings them a preacher, right? They get a sermon instead of immediate delivery. You heard Lauren read that sermon there in verses 7 to 10. In verses 8 to 10, you get a documentation. As this prophet says, he's saying, this is what the Lord has done. And then in the last half of verse 10, you get what Israel has done. So looking at verse 8 to 10a there, what has the Lord done? Well, we see he's mercifully delivered them from their enslavers uh, into the land of promise. And secondly, the Lord has warned them of what they were to not do. Right? Well, what has Israel done? Well, spurning the Lord's mercy, they do exactly what the Lord told them not to do. 
And so the prophet is there to remind them that God has been faithful. God has been trustworthy. God has been kind and loving and patient. And God has been one that they should trust and follow. And he is also there to remind them, this prophet is there to remind them that they haven't been. They haven't been. And so by giving them a sermon there, the Lord evidently wants Israel to move past their worldly sorrow for sin and on to true faith and repentance. He's trying to confront them in these things. That They kind of get sad for a while. They call out to God, and he's trying to get them out of that cycle. And they're like, yeah, 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 we shouldn't do that. Sorry about that, God. Only to just have them go right back into the sin afterwards. And so he's bringing this preacher to confront them with the words of God. So these guys have been treating God sort of like a lucky rabbit's foot of sorts. Israel has. They don't love God by trusting God. They love their own ways where they get in trouble and they feel bad and they call for the Lord's mercy. And amazingly, as we will see in a moment, God should keep showing them mercy. Time and again. But the Lord wants them to turn from sin. Trust him. And we can do the same thing, can't we? We're so similar. I'm so similar. We, we pay little attention to God at, some times, at, at times and then we get in trouble. We call out to him for help. And he sings us help. We say, thanks, God. And then we just go right back to doing what we were doing before. And a lot of times the Lord does this. Uh, as the Lord does this, he does it for the same thing that we see here. Uh, what he often does in the midst of those times when we kind of give ourselves over, say thanks, and go right back to doing things again. Oftentimes the Lord does as we see here. Instead of immediate delivery, he gives us a sermon to remind us of his grace and his mercy so that he can get to the root of our hearts. We can see what's going on down here. Down here. See, God is not just interested in circumstantial changes like the Israelites are. The Lord is after our hearts. And that's why mercy not only acts, but it also speaks as well. Mercy speaks by reminding us of the Lord's grace and our need to turn from our sin and not just seek circumstantial delivery. Well, mercy will keep speaking as the Lord does eventually raise up a deliverer. His name is Gideon, as we've said before. And like I've said, like other judges, Gideon is an interesting character. Uh, Very interesting character. When we first meet him, we find him. uh, He's in a wine press, kind of hiding in a wine press, making some food, beating out wheat. He's doing this because remember, what did the Midianites and the Malachites do? Remember, they would come and they'd raid and they'd take their food away. So he's in this wine press beating out wheat, probably because he's trying to make some food so that people won't see him, so he can keep the food and it won't be taken away from him. So wine press would have had high walls. He would have been hidden there. And as Gideon is in this wine press, beating out the wheat, he's in there. The angel of the Lord shows up. He speaks to Gideon. And the angel's description, I find this humorous, the angel's description, now that I know more about Gideon, the angel's description of Gideon is not exactly what we see in Gideon's life. He immediately calls him a mighty man of valor. You're going to see, not exactly a mighty man of valor. But that is there for reason, as you're going to see. The point of that is to show us that it's not Gideon that's great, but it's the God that is behind him and in him and working through him that will make him great. That's where the might is going to come from. But notice how Gideon responds, all right? Angel of the Lord shows up, all right? Mighty man of valor. He's in there beating out the wheat and the thing. Notice in verse 13, he calls the angel, sir. And then he goes off on this kind of doubting, cynical rant. 
he does in verse 13. In essence, he's saying, well, Gideon does, he's in the wine press. By the way, I can imagine when the angel shows up and says this, I can imagine Gideon not even stopping working. He's just sort of going about his business. Yeah, you know, whatever. And he goes on this rant in verse 13. Listen, if God is so great, why do things are so hard? If God's so great. Why do things stink so much? I'm in here having to hide in this wine press. If God's so great, where's all those wonders I heard about? God has forsaken us. Not exactly the first response you'd hope from a great hero in the Bible, right? Not the actual stuff here. But Gideon, we find he sounds more like a doubter than he does a deliverer, doesn't he? I imagine, as I said, he's not stopping work. He just keeps going on. He's calling the angel, sir. That reveals to us that this angel doesn't appear to be any different than some other man. But regardless, I think for most of us, Gideon would not have been in our top 100 list of choosing deliverers for Israel. It wouldn't have made. He would not have cracked the top 100. Probably would have cracked my top 1,000 or 2,000. But this is the God that the Lord chooses. And I think it speaks of the wonder of God. This would be the man that God would choose. And so let me also observe something else for us in this passage. Gideon seems pretty certain about the Lord's forsaken Israel, doesn't he? See that in verse 13. Seems pretty certain about the fact that God's not around, not doing much in the midst of their suffering. So I ask you guys, is Gideon's assessment accurate? Is it right? Has he got it right? Well, the answer to that is clearly no. Gideon thinks the Lord is nowhere to be found. Gideon thinks, he feels like the wonder of God is dried up in the face of all of this suffering at the hands of the Midianites. And he is saying all of that, all of that, while the wonder of the Lord is literally right in front of his face. Folks, be careful. When you start concluding things about the Lord's activity in your life or in the world or in the midst of suffering, your read on the proximity of the Lord's wonders might just be staring you right in the face. You just might not even know it. You might be so full of doubt and cynicism that you don't even recognize that the Lord has been working right in front of you, right in front of us all along. God's ways are not our ways. His timeline is rarely Our timeline. His kinds of people that he chooses to work mightily through, not the same kind of folks that we would often choose. His wonders are rarely the kind of wonders that we might construct for ourselves. And yet, God is at work all around us. He's at work all around us. You've got to have eyes to see it. Strain and pray for eyes to see it. Well, about this time, if it's me, I'm ditching this dude, Gideon. Right? If it's me, I'm like... All right, clearly, this is not our God. Well, the Lord's mercy keeps speaking. Verse 14, the angel of the Lord tells him to save Israel in his might as the Lord is with him. Yet again, Gideon, not the bastion of trust. Look at his response in verse 15. All right, so the Lord comes back on the other side of his doubtful, cynical rant. God's not around. And the Lord, or the angel of the Lord says, listen, in your all of your might, the Lord's going to be with you. You're going to do this. At which time, uh, Gideon comes back and he throws out his resume. All right, and he says, "Here's my resume, and my resume is it ain't great. You know, I didn't graduate from high school. I'm from you know Meridian, Mississippi, and whatever. You know, I'm not tall. I'm not handsome. I'm not sharp. I'm not your guy. That's what he says. Basically, he says I'm from the weakest clan in Manasseh. 
which would have been a tribe of Israel. And I'm also the weakest guy in my own family. I'm not even one of the guys. I'm not even the guy that my own family would choose. Great guy. Love this guy. The more I've studied Gideon, the more I like him. He's a lot like me. <clears throat> but then we get those words there of where the Lord speaks to us. I think that if this was a movie, we can imagine this sort of happening. And at that, in that moment, when he says it, we can imagine the music in the movie begins to heighten because we see the angel of the Lord saying, but Gideon, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Now, if you've been paying attention to this story, you should know that when you hear those words, things about to get real. Right? Things change. We've already seen the fact that the hero of judges is not the judges. These are sordid characters. The hero in judges is the Lord. It's the Lord. That's this book is so crystal clear to me. The more I think about it and study it and pray it, the the point of this book is to show us that we need God. He is the power. He's the strength. He is the mighty, merciful God that's going to deliver us. It's always the Lord. This whole book is here to point us to the need for the Lord to deliver us, to mercifully deliver us from evil, pain, suffering, difficulty, cycles of sin. How else might the Lord make that point than by using the one that nobody else would have chosen? You're going to do this, the angel says, I'm going to be with you. It's going to be your weakness, as it were. It's going to indicate the strength of God's might. Now, look in verse 17. That seemed to have gotten the attention of Gideon. All right, now the cynicism, the, the doubting, starting to wane a little bit. He's starting to go. I can imagine at this point, maybe he's kind of doing his thing in the wine press, and maybe he kind of goes, he stops, and he kind of looks at this angel in the face. And he says, listen, don't, don't, don't move, right? Let me go make you a present. Don't leave here. And I'm imagining at this point, the angel of the Lord looks back at him, smirk on his face. I won't go anywhere. I'll stay right here. You, you go ahead. And off Gideon goes, and he makes this lavish meal, verses 19 to 21. That's what, that's what it's talking about there. He makes this lavish meal that serves as a kind of offering. And when he presents it to the angel in verse 21, we see the angel of the Lord blows up that offering like that fire on a hibachi grill. Poof! And then the angel vanishes. And Gideon gets it at this point. The angel of the Lord has vanished, but the word of the Lord has not vanished. Look at verse 22. Chapter 6. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Ah. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel, angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. So Gideon uh, is given eyes to see the angel for who he actually was. And I want to ask you the question, who is this angel? Who is this angel? Angel, the word angel means messenger. So Gideon saw the messenger of the Lord. And this messenger seemed to look pretty normal. Since Gideon doesn't recognize him at first, first as anything other than a sir. 
But it becomes apparent to Gideon this was more than just some guy talking, making promises of God. Both Gideon and the text would have us to understand that Gideon was looking at the face of God. Now that should make you pause the second you hear that. Because if men look in the face of God, they die. That's what we seem, Gideon even seems to understand that in verse 23. That's the implication there. But, but what happens? Gideon doesn't die. Why? Well, it seems because the angel of the Lord, who was the Lord, gave him peace to stand in the presence of God. And so I ask you, do you know anyone else that may take the form of a man who speaks the word of the Lord and allow sinful men to stand in the presence of God at peace? Friends, I believe this to be the pre-incarnate Christ speaking to Gideon. The second person of the Trinity. See, we've seen, haven't we? We've seen the Spirit at work throughout the story of redemption, haven't we? Even in Judges. We've seen the Father at work in the story of redemption. You didn't really think Jesus was sitting up on the heavenly bench waiting to get in the game, did you? Yeah. Yeah, he's at work. He is active, Jesus is. As he was in the beginning, he is there throughout. And Gideon finally then believes the word of the Lord as is evidenced by his making peace and calling it, making an altar and calling that the Lord is peace because he's been given peace in the face of God. Guys, this is what Jesus does. This is what he does. This is the ministry of Jesus. He gives weak people that maybe used to be full of doubt peace in the presence of God. And this is what we must do in response to those of us that have received that peace from Christ. This is what we do. We build altars to the glory of God. That's what we do in response. We build altars, and those altars are our lives, right? We do, this, is, this is Romans 12, offering our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. That's how we respond to the Lord's peace. And I wonder... How do you think Gideon's assessment of the Lord's forsaken Israel, how do you think his assessment of that's going right about now? Uh, yeah, he's, I probably missed that pretty bad. Well, while we won't entertain Jesus in our homes, I think we're still waiting for Jesus to come back. We do have a word from Hebrews. It says in Hebrews chapter three, 13, verse 2, that says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Makes you want to have people over, doesn't it? I wonder how many angels have been in my home. God is at work in so many ways, we just don't often recognize it. Well, Gideon, before he delivers Israel, In his newfound might of the Lord, there's one more step that needs to be taken. We've seen judgment sometimes give. Secondly, mercy always speaks. And thirdly, destruction precedes deliverance. Destruction precedes deliverance. Take a look at verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, and on the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. And cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here. With stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as an offering. Burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. 
And so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. I want you to notice something, guys, there, right there, that maybe you didn't notice before. Right here in this passage, we have Gideon destroying the altar of who? The altar of his dad that he'd made to Baal and to Ashtra. False gods. Go back and look at verse 13 again. There we have every reason to believe that Gideon's dad taught him the one true and living God and how he delivered God's people from Egypt. It seems Gideon is growing up in a home where on the one hand his dad seems to know a good bit about the Lord, would have called himself one of the people of the Lord, and at the same time he's got altars to false gods in his backyard. Be careful. Be careful. Just because you know the gospel, call yourself a Christian, does not mean that you don't have other false gods that you're actively worshiping. Just because you claim to know God does not mean that God knows you. Gideon's father adopted the worship of the false gods that were around him. And in an assembly this size, I have to believe there are some that are actively doing that too. You take the name of Christ and yet you have adopted the idol of self over and above the Lordship of Christ. And so let's assume for a moment that's all of us in this room. Let's assume that's everybody in this room. What needs to happen to get out of that? How can we be delivered from our idolatry and go on to worship the one true and living God in spirit and in truth? Well, we have already seen it begins by crying out to God for mercy, right? We have to then, secondly, we saw mercy always speaks. We have to then listen to his word. And as we see here, we have to respond to that word by destroying those idols, and lay down our lives right on top of them. So let's ask the question, why did the Lord call Gideon to do this, to tear down this altar? Why did he do this? Tear down the altars. Why did he call him to do this? Well, before deliverance, I think what we see coming, we see repentance is needed to come. That's what's being illustrated here, the need for repentance, turning away from idols in in the face of impending battles. Remember the Lord before the Lord delivers Israel this time. Remember, he gave them a sermon that reminded him of his of past grace. And so now the Lord was going to deliver them yet again through Gideon. But Gideon needed to tear down the vessels of false worship and replace them with proper worship to the one true and living God. That's what the story is about. It's it's about destroying idols, idolatry and replacing it with true worship. In other words, guys, if I can just put that in a phrase, we worship our way out of sinful cycles. Put to death. We put off false worship and we put on true worship. We worship our way out of sinful cycles. And so if you want deliverance from idolatry of your life, deliverance from darkness that pervades your thinking and your living, you're going to have to destroy the temples that feed that idolatry and then worship the Lord. And so I don't know what that is for all of you guys. I don't know what it is. In some ways, this part was kind of easier for Gideon, right? There's this physical thing. Just go down there, take a couple bulls, pull it down. Put, a, put an altar on top of it. But even in our more sanitized versions of idolatry, we still go to physical places where we imbibe by our idolatries, don't we? We still do that. And so we need to destroy the practice of going to those places to offer sacrifices that fan the flame of our idols. Now that may be, just simply, that may be 
you're stopping attending a church that doesn't preach or believe the gospel. Or it may be ceasing going to a bar or a brothel or a casino or a mall or a website. Now, let me be clear. When you do those things, that doesn't mean I don't want to read stories today about how you one of you guys went back and burned down a mall or something because, right, like, well, Gideon did it, you know, and then they're like you put a Bible on top of it or something. That would not, that would not go well. That's what Nathan told me to do. That's really, no, that's not, no. Wow. Yeah, that probably has been preached somewhere in the world, my guess is, yeah. But listen, what we do need to do, though, what we do need to do is we need to stop the, stop the practice of going to those places. You need to stop surrounding yourself with other people that encourage you to go and make sacrifices to Baal. This is the kind of third step of seeing deliverance from oppressors and deliverance unto the Lord of peace. We cry out to the Lord for mercy. The Lord sends His Word and we enjoy His peace. And then thirdly, we destroy the places that feed our idolatry and we build in their place worship to the one true and living God. The God that hears our cries and gives us peace in our deliverance. Now, some of you are saying, all right, Nathan, I know one or two idols that need to kind of come down, but I'm a little afraid to go and do that, stop that or whatever. Look at verse 27 again. Gideon was tepid, but he still trusted the Lord. He did what the Lord asked, but he was still afraid. What his family might do. This is one of many reasons I love Gideon. Like, he's like, I'm going to do it, but like, listen, we don't have to do it in broad daylight. So, like, you know, we can obey him and maybe people won't see us, you know. Uh, so let's go do it at night and I'll bring some other guys to help me along. You know, maybe I'll, you know, anyway. So he goes and does it. So he, he does it. He's, it's fear, it's, it's evident that Gideon is afraid and yet he still trusts the Lord. He still trusts the Lord. Remember who the Lord chooses here. He loves to use weak vessels. In order to display the greatness of his glory. He loves to do that. And so friend you don't need a cape. (laughs) And you don't need some kind of spotlight. To tear down idols. To follow Jesus. To worship him. To love him. Just be faithful in those quiet moments. God sees. He sees. And that's what's important. Well in verses 28 to 32. We see why Gideon was afraid. Word gets out that little Gideon tore down the altar and the Asherah pole. And we read there in verse 30, they want to kill him as a result. I can't help but wonder if these are Israelites saying this. Don't know. People a lot like maybe Gideon's dad, Joash, who take the name of the people of God. And yet at the same time, they want to kill people because they're taking down worship, idol worship. But regardless, Gideon's dad has a wonderful response. He's standing up for his little boy. Look at verse 32. Joash says, in essence, listen, if Baal's so big and mighty and powerful and great, let him do his own work. Let him take him down. Let him take my son down. If Baal's so great, you guys don't do that. Let Baal do it. And as a result of this interchange, Gideon gets a new name. He's now called Jerub Baal or Jerubable, which means let Baal contend against him. Uh, let Baal contend against him. And I love this. I love this new name. So Gideon basically gets a new name that means, in essence, bring it on, Baal. That's basically what it means. The Lord is with me. If you're so great and powerful, I took down your thing. I, I drew, you know, I brought the battle line. Bring it on. That's my name. Bring it, Baal. So great. 
Come on, y'all. I mean, the Bible is so much fun. Read this thing. Uh, well, right about this time, though, just as this is happening, the Midianites and the Amalekites, they begin to mobilize. Okay? Maybe this is one of their raids to kind of get food. I'm not sure what it is, but nevertheless, they're coming up in force right in front of Gideon. No doubt the Lord is orchestrating all of this. We get the fulfillment of the Lord's promise to be with Gideon to deliver Israel from these guys in verse 34. Look at that verse. So important. But the Spirit of the Lord, love this language, clothed Gideon. Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. We've been seeing this through Judges time and again. And I love the response of this. There's something about this doubting and sort of cynical and kind of fearful, weak guy named Gideon that once the Spirit comes on him, what does he do? Sounds a trumpet. Let's go to war. Confidence of God. There's that might. There's that valor. Because God is with him. Tribes, he sounds the trumpet. Tribes begin to show up. But just as soon as I say Gideon's beginning to get a little strength, we get a story of what Gideon is most known for in verse 35 and following. On the eve of the great battle, the promise of God is with uh, is fulfilled in uh, clothing Gideon with his might to fight. But before we close this comical kind of story, verses 36 to 40, Gideon does what we now call in his honor, fleecing God. So clearly, Gideon is still having some doubts even after he's closed with the Spirit, uh, which tells us why, we need to, why we're commanded to not grieve the Spirit. But he wants to do the right thing, but he wants to make sure this battle's going to go well. So Gideon has come a long way just to get to this point, but in order to clear up any doubts, he throws out a blanket and asks the Lord to put dew on the fleece, but not on the ground. And if he does that, Gideon will then know the battle's going to be his. And guess what? The Lord does it. And you'd think that'd be enough, right? Nope, Gideon's got more tricks up his bag. Take a look at verse 39. I love this. I laughed so many times at this verse reading it. It's probably not very funny, but it's actually funny all at the same time. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak once more. So basically, Gideon's going like, just, I know, thank you for that, the, the fleece thing there. Thank you for the angel of the Lord. You know, the hibachi, thank you for that. Thank you for clothes. Thank you for, just, I know you just did that. Just don't get mad at me, God. Don't, one more thing. Just one, if I could just ask one one more thing, just to be sure that I'm going to get this battle. <laughs> and so this time he asked, well, Lord, can you put the dew on the ground, but not on the blanket? Then I'll have confidence. And the Lord does. it. He confirms his promise to Gideon to deliver Israel. Now, next week, we'll have to see what happens in the battle. But I want you all to leave here recognizing the patience of God patience of God with this man. He says time and again, the Bible does, God says of himself time and again that he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. Many people, I think, accuse him in the Old Testament of saying that he's quick to anger. But they're not studying the Bible. right? He is so patient. And of course, the Lord would have known he needed to be patient with this guy, Gideon. It's one of the reasons he chose him, so as to show this is what we're like, that's why we need him. After all, he does 
God does intentionally choose the town cynic who happens to have one of the weakest resumes in town to be his God. Why? To show his patience. To show his love. To show his might. His strength. So be encouraged, friends. If you think that you are too far from God, too slow-witted, too weak, listen, this is here to show you that the Lord is glad to use you for His glory. Glad to use you. I think it's fair to say that if you're weak, that you're sort of doubting and distrustful, but you desire to know Him and follow Him, He loves to use people like you. He loves to. God is patient with weak and doubting people. And so far as he's bringing them along to declare his glory. But friends, as this is here to point us to the power of God, the patience of God, it is not here to point us to how weak and doubting people should make decisions. Did I really need to say that? But we do. I can remember doing this vividly. And I'm not going to tell you what I did, but I remember doing stuff just like this. I didn't throw blankets out, but I did sort of say like, you know, well, God, I'm not yet. I'm not even going to go there. But anyway... Listen, like, don't go out tomorrow morning and be like, when you come home tonight, and like, go outside and take your car mats out and throw them out on the lawn. Say, Lord, you know, I got this big decision over here. If you could just put some dew on the, you know, on the car mat, not on the grass, then I'll know what to do. Don't do that. All right? If you got a job offer in San Diego, don't, like, Lord, if I see a lot of sunglasses tomorrow, that's going to be a sign from you that I should go take that job. Don't do that. Don't do that. Right? You're going to be tempted to do that. I'm tempted to do that. Don't do that. See, we have something that Gideon didn't have. We have something that is more sure than what Gideon had. See, what we have, friends, is the complete revelation of God's Word in the Bible. Gideon had God's Word, but even still, he's still sort of doubting and distrustful, that sort of thing. We have the complete revelation of His Word right in front of us. Those of us that have repented and trusted on Jesus, you have the Spirit of God within you, just as Gideon did, to know this Word and understand it so that you might make choices that please God in life and godliness. Everything you need for the most important decisions you need to make, they're right here. There's nothing missing. Is this going to be able, are you going to be able to open this up tomorrow and go like, let's see if I should take that job in San Diego. Is that, maybe it's in Isaiah somewhere. No, it doesn't, doesn't work that way, right? But it will present you with all that you need to know for life and godliness. The most important decisions in your life are here. If you give yourself to those words, should you seek wisdom? Yes, but don't fleece the Lord. Don't fleece the Lord. You don't need any more revelation than has already been given to you in the totality of his word. And so because it is in that word, in this word, we see most clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one that came, Jesus, the one that came and did not vanish like he did with Gideon. Right? The, the one that came, Jesus, the one that came and lived in order to defeat the greater enemy, greater than the Midianites, greater than the Amalekites, the, the, the enemy of the Israelites. Right? Our sin, that was what the problem was. The desire to do whatever the heck we wanted to do. That was the problem. Christ came to defeat that enemy of sin, Satan, and death. And he appeared... Again, in the form of weakness as a baby. This is what we celebrate. It's so amazing at Christmas time, right? God, the second person of the Trinity, uh, that it can take on a form of a man in the, in, in, a, in the time of Gideon. He becomes a baby, grows to be a man. And how does he win? By weakness. 
Everybody, he's up. Christ lives a sinful, sinless. Don't miss that. Big miss. (laughs) Christ lives a sinless life. He commits no sin. And as he is hanging on the cross, similar to what we see in Gideon, those ideas, we'll think more about those next week, about this idea of weakness, winning. Everybody thought he lost. And in that moment, he's winning more than he ever was. Paying the penalty for sin on the cross for all those that repent and believe. Buried in the tomb. Three days later, rises from the grave and says, you lose sin, you lose Satan. You lose. And all that you thought was going on over there like I was losing, I was winning the whole time. That's Christ. We win by weakness and we look to Jesus to be the one. He's, he's the one that is fulfilling the promises of God here in the, in the Bible. He's the, the gospel is called the power of God to salvation. Everything you need is in him. All of your decisions, all of your life are in him. The God of this world cannot contend with you if you are in Christ. Your name is Jerubabel, as it were, right? He cannot contend with us. No weapon formed against us shall prevail. Even if it looks like they do. The gospel will be enough for you, Christian. Listen to the words of mercy. Destroy those idols. Walk in the victory of Christ. And remember, Christian, God has clothed you with His Spirit. You now are a mighty man or woman of valor. Walk in that victory. Christ has overcome the grave. Nothing can stand against you in Christ. Follow Him. Destroy those idols. Look to Him. Hold fast to the Word. And walk in His might as you hold fast to His Spirit and the work of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And friend, if you are not a Christian, I just want to plead with you this morning to destroy those idols. Find life in binding yourself to Christ. Find the deliverance you need there. Submit yourself. The world's not going to tell you this. This It's going to be the one place in your week you're going to hear this. Submit yourself. Submit your desires to Jesus. And follow Him with His people. And you will know what victory is. Even if the world says it's not. He loves to use weak people. And we get to think about that even more next week as we continue the story. Let's pray for him for help. To him for help. Oh God, we thank you for the story of Gideon. How glad we are to know that you take weak people in order to display the greatness of your might. So God, I pray that we would be a people that would confess our sins and tear down those idols and lay our lives down on top of them, worshiping our way out of idolatry and those sinful cycles, knowing that Christ is good. His commands are good. And so may we help each other on towards the new Canaan. Thank you, God, for the deliverance of Jesus Christ. And God, for those that are struggling, those that have not yet believed, that they trust Jesus, submit their lives to him, know that freedom is found there. We ask this in his name.